Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connection through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I'd also like to acknowledge Mana Whenua of Te Awakairangi Kitai, where I'm recording today. Hello! Hi! How are you? I'm good. I have dog barking in the background. I can hear her out there. There's probably a bird somewhere. Oh, well that's fair. She's protecting her territory. Yes, I just, I spent like the last 12 years getting in with the Magpie Mafia, like offerings for them and like... <laughs> letting them know that I'm not a threat and now we have like a nesting couple that like always bring their baby into our garden so I'm like this is gonna mess up my in with the family I'm a little bit stressed mm. oh dear I know I don't want to get swooped and they all talk to each other so it's real dangerous <laughs> you need to establish a little gang where they can like go steal money for you I see Reddit <laughs> posts like that all the time where people are like so I started like giving these crows bread and then they started bringing me money so I gave them better bread and now they're bringing more money <laughs> I'm like I love this I love it even crows are capitalists they get it yeah <laughs> we all have to live in a capitalist hellscape even the, the fauna yeah, well, this is what we have to do as millennials in this capitalist hellscape. We have to get the birds to steal for us. <laughs> Can't pay rent unless the crows bring their tithe. Oh, no. <laughs> so terrible. Yeah. Well, what sparked joy for you this week? I went to a new book club this week. It's hosted by Good Books, which is a lovely, tiny, tiny, very inclusive bookshop near my old house actually so it's very inconvenient it's literally like around the corner from my ye oldy house mm-hmm. um anyway it's lovely it's just this lovely little bookshop owned by these two i think she's a poet and a new zealand poet and a new zealand author Ooh. and i opened this bookshop and anyway i was on the waiting list because they started at the start of the year and then obviously everyone wanted to join so i joined the waiting list and they emailed earlier in the month to say the spot had opened do i want to come along and i was like sure so i did and it was lovely. It was just like, obviously, you went in, don't know anyone. And yeah, just had some chats about a book. That's great. I love that. And how good is it when you find a little bookshop that you really like, and then they do book clubs, and you're like, oh, I get to be part of it, this place that I love, without having to be gainfully employed by them. Yeah. <laughs> I ended up getting the book for the next month, but I won't actually be here, so whoopsie but anyway i'll still read it yeah and that way you'll know what to say if someone refers back to it in the month after right yeah true 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 what about you what sparked joy for you this week it's gonna sound really silly and embarrassing but i cleaned my whole house yesterday and today like yesterday i took apart all my sewing stuff and put it all back together and today i just did like all the floors and swapped out the cat bath like because you can scoop only so much with the cat boxes you have to like eventually just do a swap so I swapped everything over with the cat boxes I like did three loads of laundry I made all the beds vacuumed mopped it's just feeling really good in my house right now and I feel really good about it so yeah it's just I mean it was a lot of work but I just put my headphones in and listened to this chapter like 47 times on repeat so there you go (laughs) wow okay so you're really studied up for this week's discussion well This week we're reading chapters 33 to 37 through the theme of violence. Did you have a story on the theme of violence? I do. 
So in our house, we only have a few ironclad rules. Um, be safe, be kind, and be your best. Now, I borrowed these rules from my son's school, and they pretty much cover everything. But there are a few other rules that have crept onto the list, and not surprisingly, most of them are anti-violence. So we have the usual, like, no hitting, no pushing, no name-calling rules. I mean, and you can file those under the umbrella of both be kind and be your best. But there's one I had in place even before I had kids, which is no weapons. We do not have toys that are weapons. There are no play swords or nerf guns in my house. There are no lightsabers in my house and nothing. Um, and when my daughter made a box cutter out of cardboard and then pretended to threaten to cut me with it, I took it off her. It's actually a really clever bit of paper art. Here, I'll show it to you. Look at this. It actually goes up and down. Oh, wow. She made this. And she made it as a box cutter, but then, like, you know, she pretended to threaten me with it. And I was like, oh, that's mine now, because we don't have weapons in the house. We don't even pretend violence in this house. Um, part of the reason I'm so anti-weapon and so anti-violence is because I grew up in an environment that was just really full of casual violence. My parents, my parents weren't even that bad, but my mom still broke a wooden spoon by hitting me with it. My favorite auntie once grabbed my face so hard it hurt for days afterward just to make a point about something being unacceptable. My grandparents were really old school, and my mom often told me stories about how when she was a child, her mother would hit her on the head with a wooden hairbrush if she wriggled or complained during the brushing of her hair. Now, my daughter, who elbows me and gets away with it, has no idea how good she has it. There was a lot of joking as well about belting your kids, and though I don't actually remember being belted, I knew it was a possibility that I could be. Um, in a word, it wasn't safe. It didn't. I didn't feel safe. The other part of that was that I grew up not really caring if I hurt anyone else for a really long time. Because, yeah, sure, it sucks, but it's part of life, right? We all hurt each other. So what? No one is safe, least of all me. So when you combine permissive violence like that with a kid like me, who was already impulsive and had huge feelings, it's just a recipe for someone growing up unable to check their anger, unable to check those violent impulses. It took me a really long time to realize that I could be safe and that I could live in peace. And once I got there, I never wanted to go back the other way. It took a lot of work to realize what living peacefully was like. So as my kids have grown up, I've been stricter than many parents about the violence that they're allowed to see or experience. I'm certainly stricter than my own parents are. I don't care if they want to lie around and watch TV all day, as long as it's something like Bluey, right? If, all their, if they mm. want to play video games, sure. Every single video game they have is G or PG rated, and we vetted, I mean played, them all. They don't have any play weapons either, so it's interesting to watch them as they play with each other because they invent games like Freeze or I'm going to turn you into a fruit or an animal, and that's how they get the other kid to stop pestering them. So, like, if my son is bothering my daughter, she'll just be like, bang, turn you into a mango, and he has to curl up there, and he's like, oh, I can't believe she turned me into a mango. It's actually really effective, and it's not violent at all. They also already know when they're upset that they can just disappear into their own space. They know that they have bedrooms they can retreat into. And it's amazing to see how well they get along without needing to hurt each other. Anyway, I don't really get to congratulate myself right now, though, because they're preteens and their worlds are about to open up. Mm. So I've started kind of conceding this point a bit where I'm watching shows with my daughter that are a little bit more grown up now so we can talk about the things we see and put them in context. We have a lot of good chats about what we watch, and I'm really glad that I'm able to make the time for it. She's a bit like me. Everything sticks for a really long time, but I don't know what she's going to see or experience in her future. I just want her to know that no matter what, I'm safe. I'm peaceful. I will not raise a hand to hurt her. Violence doesn't get to take anything else from me because I think it's already taken enough. That's fair. I don't want to do the suffering Olympics here, and I'm sure that people would listen to me talk about my mom and be like, well, everybody was spanked as a kid, but I mean, like, 
we really shouldn't be hitting kids. <laughs> There's no reason to hit a child. There's study after study after study that talks about how it doesn't actually do any good for the kids. So we should never be hitting kids. This does not. It is not acceptable. I think there's also something in there about growing up in America versus growing my kids growing up in Australia where the threat of gun violence just isn't a reality for them. Mm. Yeah. And it's just not part of the day-to-day life. Yeah, it's interesting when you grow up in an environment where violence is just your reality in a lot of ways. Like, I obviously grew up in a during a time in South Africa that was quite turbulent Mm. and violence was just something that we were taught to guard against and it wasn't that unusual to be exposed to violent situations just on the streets and Mm -hmm. stuff so in a lot of ways you do become desensitized to that sort of thing yeah because that's just your lived experience right did you also have the gunshots or fireworks thing? It took me a really long time to not be like, what's that? Whenever I heard fireworks gunshots, going off here. Yeah. <laughs> or like a backfiring car, right? But like, yeah, mm. my neighbor who literally lived two doors down from us one morning was shooting his pool cleaner. You know, the thing that goes in the pool. We used to call them creepy yeah. crawlies in South Africa. Yeah. But he was just shooting at it because it was stuck in the corner and I had to like walk past his house to like go to school. So she's like, okay, just run really quickly past his house. And I'm like, cool. Oh Off my I go. gosh. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a rural hunting, fishing community and like went out with my dad and his dad when they were hunting and went out when they were fishing. And that was just normal to be around guns from, I don't like some of my earliest memories when my dad was going hunting like picking mm. birdshot out of a bird, taking the feathers off and picking the birdshot out. That was something I did as a child, like a tiny child. <laughs> well, of course. You have small hands. It's perfect for that kind of job. <laughs> I was completely unfazed by it as well, which is, I think, the beauty of children. is It's just like, okay, whatever. Yeah, this is my life. Like, you don't know any better, right? So why would it bother you? Exactly. I think the defining feature of me growing up and having kids was being like, I do not want the same for them in that respect. I want them to be able to be soft because I really desperately wanted to be soft. Yeah. I always tell these stories and my friend Sophie from work is always like, Tales from South Africa. She's like, can you please just put a trigger warning on everything you talk about? (laughs) Yeah. This is why we get along because we both had these really weird quasi- violent childhoods that weren't really that bad to anyone else that we grew up with but to everyone that to, in the places we live now they're like yeah. what happened to you you don't think it's weird until you talk to other people and you're like oh okay i see yeah. i thought that was a universal experience but apparently not exactly same hard same just like oh you didn't have to like <laughs> crab bucket your way out to survive cool cool okay so we don't do that here nice to know oh no one taught you as an eight-year-old how to crawl under a car seat in case you got carjacked. I'm confused. <laughs> what? Oh, we had that for kidnappers. It's so terrible. Oh my goodness. Your mother didn't time you to see how quickly you could get into a car? I'm confused. What? Oh my gosh. Anyway, it's fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. We live in safe, <laughs> safer places now. Thank goodness. Shall I do our chapter summaries on that cheerful note? Let's let, yes, please. Let's uh, let's discuss some more violence. Okay. While the green mantles go spelunking, Colin is not really into it. But Piper seems to be hearing something and wants to press on, but with minions. So thankfully, they go back out of the cave. She continues to be weird, and Colin is getting freaked out. Gwen Clean, meanwhile, is wreaking noisy havoc at 300 Foxway, but the grey man asks her to sing her story, and she does. She shows Blue that they're the same, that they're mirrors, 
And if things aren't weird and spooky enough, there's a scaffolding failure at Aglenby where Adam should have been killed, but he's perfectly protected. Caves water again. Ooh. Speaking of our childhoods and how we're used to violence in, mm. you know, some messed up ways, I think Piper similarly, know, knowing who what we know who her dad is, right? Yeah. So we know that her childhood was likely also quite violent. And now she's in this relationship with Greenmantle who lives a life that even though he acts above it all and doesn't get his own hands dirty... He does trade in violence as well. Like, he Mm. outsources it through his minions, but he still trades in it. So Piper is actually very used to violence, I think. And she's used to casually threatening violence. And, like, I do this all the time as well, where I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to throw myself in the sea or whatever. But she threatens to put a pickaxe through his right eye, which is so specific. And you can usually throw that away as being like, oh, yeah, lol, she doesn't mean it. But I think she really means it. Yeah, I, I think she does too. And I think he knows that. Because, right, he, he talks about later how when he bought his first haunted relic, she mm-hmm. was the one who was like, oh, I'll cut myself and smear blood on it. Like, he, that was a level of personal involvement that he hadn't yet achieved. And then, you know, he went on to say that he liked stuff that was atmospheric and moody and she liked stuff that was dark. So they already mm-hmm. have different, like, places where they come from in terms of their preference for violence. So, like, she will casually do it. As long as it doesn't get her messed up, right? Mm-hmm. As long as yeah. she's still got time for ladies fencing or naked baking or whatever. Go in a book club and doesn't get any blood on her manolos, she's fine. Yeah. Like. Yeah, she's kind of like weirdly iconic. I, I kind of hesitate to say that, but you know what I mean? She's yeah. like the ultimate girl boss. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she's like getting it done. She's like yeah. evil L Woods. <laughs> she is evil L Woods. Oh my God. Oh, that's perfect. She is evil. I love this. This is this is it. I'm just gonna. Say <laughs> I love that she also. I love that she draws the three of swords as well when she's having her little moment. Yeah. Um, because you know the three of swords, terrible card, all about suffering and heartbreak and loss, and they're quite a violent image as well. Mm. But also just the connection that she's undergoing, like she's becoming connected to the ley line, but not really. She's becoming connected to this demon, this yeah. other sleeper, right? Who's like playing on her because she does have this dark interior already i think which makes her easy yeah to connect with yeah that's for sure true i'm i kind of want to talk about the inverse of that where at the very end of the Mm. chapter or at the section you see adam and there's this beautiful moment where he's surrounded by all of these tiles that should have like chopped him up and killed him Mm. but he's fine and Here it is, page 291. An expression was now appearing on Adam's face, but it too was unfamiliar. Wonder. And I just think this is such a great signifier of Adam really leaving behind the world of violence and trading it for wonder. So his connection with Caveswater is what makes this possible. Mm. And I have a lot of feelings about the fact that Caveswater is basically functioning in the job of a parent for him. So a parent Mm. is... And in my view, a parent is there to guide you and protect you. And sometimes they might be a little scary because they're telling you that the world is scary. But they don't want to scare you to hurt you. They want you to understand. And they want to protect you. And, like, this is like parenting 101. is like having someone vulnerable and looking after them. Like, you need them to understand, but also you're protecting them. And I just feel like he's getting that care, finally. And so he's experiencing the wonder of that. And trading violence as parental care for wonder is just so good because mm. caves water gives adam what he needs and what he needs as you have said multiple times is a parent right so he's yes. reaching out and like they're doing that but i just love that chapter so much because there's so much going on in it right because you've got ronan's joy and the otherness of it as well like he is so joyful in this moment that you know adam is having this experience in the way and gansey describes the expression on his face as arrogance mm. 
Like he'd known that Caves Water would save him. He'd been certain of it. Because in a lot of ways, like Ronan and Caves Water are intertwined, you know, like they are yeah. one and the same thing. And he is so used to covering up weird things happening as well. He's so dismissive compared, like, when he's facing the other students. He, like, says to um, Henry that it's your signs. They created a force field. And, you know, he's just so, like, <laughs> blasé about it. Yeah, he acts I think so that is so cool. interesting. Because he just pretends... To him, he's used to pretending that things are normal that are obviously not normal. Yeah. Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of in Buffy, when they give her the umbrella. And it's like... Listen, we know that this school is really weird and bad, but you made it a lot better. And, like, we might not have been the nicest to you, but, like, thank you so much. Like, that's what's happening. They're all in Sunnydale, except it's Aglaby. Mm. I love Gansey's reaction as well, because he starts off this chapter quite wistful in the fact that he can't mm. make these two lives, these two parts, reconcile, right? He thinks they don't belong together. Yeah. And then on page 291, he says... He had just thought these two worlds could not coexist, and yet here was Adam, both at once, alive because of it. I'm like, like you, Genzie, you are also alive because of these two worlds coexisting. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that his perfect morning is, like, ruined by the threat of violence. Like, because yeah. Green Mantle's somewhere out there, and because Mora hasn't returned yet, like, that's the only thing ruining this otherwise perfect morning. And I just, yeah, I love the connection between the three of them. The fact that students just make space for them because they are intrinsically connected, yeah. right? I just, I love that. And then he says he was so grateful to have found all of them finally. Like, just the way this is just home to him. It's just it's chef's kiss. I love it. Love it. I also love it. And I like that it's right after he's had a chat with Henry and offered to go get him coffee, too. That feels like a nice little nod to what's coming in the next book, which is Henry becoming one of the gangsy he belongs we just yeah. don't know it yet which is really nice to see i like that he keeps showing up here and gansey always has time for him which is nice violence being inherent in who the gray man is mm. you know and when Cleon recognizing it she says to him you know he says to her one sword knows another yeah i love that connection that she makes and he's just so efficient he's so good at his job like when he shoots the weird demon creature thing yeah. that comes out of the cave he's just like no <laughs> nonsense <laughs> Poor Jesse Diddley being like, this has been my week. <laughs> I loved that section so much. Can we talk about Jesse Diddley a bit? I love that when they go to the house, Blue is already so close to him that she feels like giving him a hug. Blue is not a hugger. Mm. But she like goes up on tiptoe and he leans down to give her a hug. Like She's excited to see him. She's happy to take the gray man out there, even though they're thinking about hiding a body in the cave. Like, what? Like, <laughs> this is fine. This is fine. Let's just ignore that bit of violence. But she's got this connection with him that's really beautiful. And then she says, I want to hear about how your life is, how excellent your life is now that we took the curse out of the cave. And he's like, life is good, but the cave. And then he talks about <laughs> how he's been fighting off these creatures all week. Like, he still is like, life is good, though. Oh, my gosh. Jesse, don't we? <laughs> I love that section where the gray man convinces Gwen Clean to sing her story right yeah. and i just love it because she says to him what a cunning weapon you are and i don't know mm. why but that really just felt like shakespearean to me that phrase was just like really put me in mind of a shakespeare play there is a bit of like king lear to it and then the whole section just felt very poetic to me and then it ends with blue making that joke about her exiting stage right with a vacuum yeah. cleaner yeah. which i felt like just really neatly tied it up into this like little Shakespearean tidbit which is so appropriate because of the way that the grey man just loves poetry like yes okay it's not middle English but still <laughs> it still counts and I think also the fact that he loves poetry from that era 
means he's speaking a common enough language for Gwen Clean to actually like respond to him in a way that she can't really respond to anyone else. But I think it's really interesting mm. to talk about the fact that her story is one of violence. It's about committing an act of violence to stop a wider act of violence, right? So she, mm -hmm. on page 271, she sang a furious little song about Glendower's poet, Iolo Gok, and how he whispered war in her father's ear. She whispered this part into Blue's ear. And so as blood soaked into the ground of Wales, Gwen Clean did her best to stab him to death. So she's like doing the equivalent of punching a Nazi today. Like she is stopping yeah. bigger hate with a smaller act of violence. But she was punished for that in such a violent way. Like her autonomy was taken away for 600 years. Which well, is Blue then huge. says on page 271, Blue wondered if she would have the courage to stab someone if she thought it would save lives. Which to me is just like, it's the trolley problem, right? Yeah. Are you capable of making that decision? And because of my childhood and the way that I grew up, I feel like I had this reckoning very young in my life being like, if given the mm -hmm. choice, what would I be willing to do to protect the people I love? And therefore, and like people find this quite horrifying, but I don't think I would have any problems doing that. Yeah. So I actually had a question about that. I think that um, Blue needing courage to be violent. I think that's only because she was raised with peace. I think if you're mm. raised with violence, it's the easier way because you're like, oh, I know how to do this. But if you're raised with peace, you're like, oh, I have to have courage to be violent. Whereas if you're raised around violence, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is just what everyone's doing. It's harder to be peaceful. I also think violence begets violence in mm. a lot of ways, right? It's the classic thing is like once you do something once, once you make the hard thing, the hard choice once, every time you do it again, it becomes easier. And I think you can kind of see that in the Lynch boys, right? Like they, yeah. they were raised quite violently. Like even though they were protected and they were loved, like they fought with each other. Niall taught them to fight because he knew violence would come to them yeah. eventually, right? And then Ronan finds his father completely murdered mm. in the driveway like that is a very violent image for him to then square with and he does these reckless things but also just the way that death is so often a solution to these people like violence is the answer you've got adam killing welk right mm. like he sort of absolves himself from that being like well you know he did what he did Kavinsky yeah. dying, both these boys, Ronan and adam having grown up in violent situations having these violent solutions mm yeah it's yeah and it's really interesting to see what that violence does like where it comes from and what it manifests because if you have somebody who hasn't and who has violent tendencies and they just need an outlet sure teach them how to box right but if you have someone yeah. who has violent tendencies and has just been acted violent upon then you get a kavinsky right mm, and the gray man right being so good at the violence that was enacted on him that his brother, the sociopath, did to him. He became really good at violence in order as a way of like protecting himself later. Yeah. And he's like deadened himself so he doesn't have to feel it because he felt it all as a child. It's really interesting. Dissociated. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I just I like think he's so much better. Well, see, I think I am inherently a violent creature. I work very hard not to be. Mm. But the propensity of violence is definitely within me. Maybe yeah. that's just all of us. Yeah, I think I, I think maybe ten years ago I would have said, even fifteen years ago I would I would have said the same thing about myself. But I think the harder you work at being peaceful, and the less you like let it in, the stronger you get at being able to keep it out. Because that's been my experience of it.
the meanest I get to my kids now is like if they really, really cheese me off, I'll say like, damn it, and then leave the room. And they're both like, oh, no, mom is furious. Like, that's the worst <laughs> that it gets here is a little muffled, not even swear and me just exiting stage left. Right. So that they can so I can go and be mad by myself for 10 minutes until I can figure out what I actually needed to go to do to get through it. But that was not my experience as a kid at all. And mm. I think, like, when you have parents who yell and shout and hit you, like Adam did especially, like, you just get used to that being your your day-to-day life. And it's not until you're taken out of it that you can really sort of step back and go, oh, my gosh, there's another way. It's interesting as well, because as you know, we, my homie and I are watching The West Wing. Mm. And we're on season four at the moment. And there's this big plot that I, there's just this arc in it that I find very annoying because it's classic American exceptionalism where oh, they're yes, like, we the must go and right? liberate. Well, the terrorists, but now they've gone to liberate some made up African country, which I don't like anyway. But it's this thing about how America just has, they stick their oar in because they think they're this paragon of democracy and they need to go and save people from themselves. And it's like, we had an interesting debate in the house as well about like, if you know that something terrible is happening in another country, is it really your business as a whole separate other nation to go and interfere? Like, you know genocide is happening. Genocide, objectively, mm. a horrible thing. And then there's this whole thing where the president goes and tries to rescue three Marines who've been kidnapped. And then in the end, 17 Marines die. Was and it's it like, wow, it? if you, you should just have left the three because now you've sacrificed 17. And like, how do you make that call? It's just interesting because all of it is violence. It's like you want to be doing something so bad that you're willing to do the wrong thing. You want to do the good thing so badly, but I think the realities of things like that is there are no good options. Yeah. Yes. Sometimes it just shakes out that way that there's no clean solution to anything. I feel like we Mm. just have to be more like Persephone. It takes longer than a weekend to undo centuries of damage. Just that patience presence just being there waiting it out i do love Kala being like centuries of damage or being incurred in just a weekend though <laughs> she's so good i like how i one of my things that i love about this chapter is that orla and blue are like the enemy of the enemy is my friend so they're friends now <laughs> because they both do not like gwen clean in the house they're like get it out <laughs> i think it's really funny yeah i don't think i'd want to be friends with orla but like i love that she paints blue's fingernails to match the pig that's a cute moment it is cute they're like united yeah going back to childhood stuff and talking about like growing up in 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 violence within violence surrounded by violence the bit on page 279 where blue observes that gwen clean had already proven herself extremely gifted at finding each person's one weakness and leaning on it casually i reckon that's my superpower and i work so hard to keep that in check i always know the worst thing possible to say to someone when they're feeling vulnerable and it's like this dark, horrible gift that I have. And that's totally something I learned at my house growing up. And I just have like choked that back my whole life. So that one hit me like a ton of bricks. The violence we can do to each other just with unkind words is like a real thing. Yeah. I always want to say the meanest thing. Often the truest thing though. Like, like Ronan, I like to wield the truth as a weapon because I find like a lot of people don't know the truth they they blind themselves to their own weaknesses their own like they don't there's just no self-awareness in a Mm. lot of people and i i get that but i'm someone who loves nothing i love more than being extremely self-aware and so i find it quite easy to wound people with the truth and i have to work really hard to not do that in the um raven cycle tarot deck the knight of swords has a description that says yeah you know 
it's good to be the knight of swords some of the time no one needs to be this knight of swords all of the time and i think that to myself all the time <laughs> i'm like don't yeah. stab people just because you can yeah just because you have the sword doesn't mean you should use it for hurting but it's such a sharp sword and i'm really good at using it like that, that's the problem it's right there and i've used it my whole life it's also power though isn't though i think it's power because when you feel like you were powerless in those environments growing up especially like you know we were kids and there were a lot of moments where we felt really powerless oh yeah having the ability to do that but gives you power like it makes you feel powerful it makes you feel in control so that begs the question of like what kinds of violence are we looking at here so we're looking at the violence of like adam's father against him which is a violence of power and then we're looking at the violence of gwenclean stabbing yola gok which is the violence of like stopping a terrible thing from continuing and like there's different methods for it but it's still violence right so then what is like there's no right or wrong it's just there's there's difference you know there's difference to all of it violence is sometimes the answer <laughs> I hate to say it, but like, this is the argument. This is the this is the tolerance, the intolerance. Is it the tolerance or the intolerance paradox? The tolerance paradox, I think, where you can't let Nazis in by being polite. You just have to be like, no, you can't come in. And it's sort of the one area of my life that I'm re really firm on. So if someone comes to me in good faith and says, look, I think I've been radicalized and I don't think I'm following that the right way. What do I do? I'm going to engage with them and be like, okay, you're a human. Here's what we're going to do. If they come to me and they're like, no, this is why a certain group should be eradicated. They're just out. They're gone. I, I don't have time for that. They're not allowed in yeah. my house. They're not allowed in my sphere. They're just not. Because you can't let them have even a foot in the door. Like, it's just not. A, you, you cannot be a truly tolerant society when you have even one intolerant person in there. No, and... It's also the way that it's used against you because it's like, well, if your politics is one of inclusivity and like not violence and all these stuff, like all these things, then if you enact behavior like that where you exclude someone or you act violently, then it's the whole like, well, you know, now you're a hypocrite. Now you are, you're taking away my free speech. And I think we see this a lot. We definitely had this argument in the country when we had that turf come here to do her little protests and Ugh. more people turned out to protest against her. And people were like, oh my gosh, you were so violent and she feared for her safety. And I'm like, well, She's... no one was threatening her. She just didn't like that people weren't welcoming her. Like, a Free speech means you can say what you want without the fear of the government putting you in jail for Locking it. you up. It yeah. doesn't mean that you are free from the consequences of saying horrible things about people. You still have to suffer those consequences. And if that's that a bunch of people get together to say that what you're saying is horrible, you kind of have to own that. But it's always the thing that gets used against the left. It's like, you need to listen. Like, you're being, you're not being respectful. You're not giving people a voice, blah, blah, blah. But the right never, ever do it. But because the left's politics is one of inclusivity, it's like, it's like something that really bugs people. It's mm. like, well, maybe we should listen. Maybe we should hear both sides. News media in particular being like, well, we'll feature speakers from both sides of the argument. And it's like, no, no, no. If it's a bad faith argument, then you don't need to engage the bad faith actor. Like if the argument itself holds no water, then you don't need to give credence to the argument. By putting two people up there, like they mm. both hold the same weight, then you are making people think that the argument has a valid standing and it doesn't. That is mm -hmm. the point. Just across the countries I've lived in, especially like the left being a bit too, oh, do you think so? 
you know like just mm. don't don't allow the opinions in that are going to be hurtful like just don't allow them in but there's this idea also that within left voters i've noticed which is that they have to like the, there's a purity politics thing going on where like if someone's not doing enough then they're not good so they're not like especially in the u.s like oh he's not doing enough for this so i'm not gonna vote for him like who cares if he's getting you one step away from, you know like you have to decide yeah. that you're working toward and not expect it to happen overnight like that's that's a real problem i've noticed that a lot going into because we've got an election this year and people are already being like well none of our left parties are doing enough the greens aren't doing enough for climate change they've been in government for three years why has nothing changed and i'm like yeah okay but you know who's gonna do nothing for climate change the yeah. right so i'm sorry that it's not perfect <laughs> but it's better than nothing i'm glad you mentioned climate change because i feel like that's one of the biggest we see straw men arguments all the time is they get like a climate scientist and a climate denier and it's like they're yeah. not the same there's literally no equity there and i know that like yeah. we kind of said that we were going to try and be like gentle politically but if it's not obvious now that we're both very left-wing like it should be <laughs> Yeah. And like, that doesn't mean I don't have right wing friends. I absolutely do. Like, I'm not one of those people who can't be friends with people who are different politically than me. But I think we need to be acknowledging that you can't be harmful in your policies. And like, if you are a climate denier, then you are, to come back to our theme, enacting a violence on humanity, because that's not going to work out for any of us. No, we need to live in this world. This is like where we live. And honestly the danger isn't the climate right the earth will continue it's us we're harming ourselves oh yeah it's our own survival that's what we're talking about when we talk about climate change yep it's our ability to live well in this world without it being you know a hellscape to a point where we can't live in it yeah where it's mad maxing every day yeah just uh bang it to work on your spike car or whatever <laughs> that's the worst bit we'll still have to go to work <laughs> And our water will be rationed. Come on, guys. I'll have to go to work to get my water rationed. (laughs) It's just the hellscape continues. Anyway. (laughs) Let's talk about... (laughs) Let's talk about Gwenclean's connection to Blue. One, she talks to the tree in the backyard and Blue's like, oh, she talks to the tree. So do you, Blue. But secondly, both of them being mirrors. Yes, I love this. I love that there's finally, that Blue finally gets someone who is like her. Because she's like, I didn't Mm. know there was anyone like me. And of course, it's like the eight foot tall cryptid living in the house. But like, that's fine. (laughs) I love that Gwynclean can't really explain it to her. So she has to like, get her up to the room and then like, tease out what Blue is thinking. And then like, say, yes, that's it. Like, she can't actually say it. She has to show her like a mirror would. So great. And then I love that she goes, no, I'm going to go get more mayonnaise. And that (laughs) is just great. I hate her eating habits so much. Every time I read this section, I'm just like, no, thank you. (laughs) Putting peanut butter on a hot dog. There's so much wrong with that. No, thank you. satay sauce, really. (laughs) What, like Tom Hanks from Castaway and he gets home and he probably wants to eat everything because all he's had is coconuts, right? Like this is her life. She's like, I've got to try everything. All I've had is coconuts. Only she hasn't had anything but like, cave worms or whatever oh gosh i know also love that we get to see a little bit of connection between blue and mr gray you know and she feels known by that um yeah they both enjoying each other's um precise sense of humor as in the sense of humor that morris Sargent has i really love that yeah and i love that she talked you know he says that i didn't think you'd be one for normal and she talks about how it's boring but at least it's not scary and then yeah I think that is so true. Like a lot of people crave adventure and crave a break, but making that leap is a, a scary thing. 
And I love yeah. that the grey man says, you know, it's not... Like, she says, you know, are you too badass for that? And he's like, no, usually they're the most scared. And I thought that that really yeah. made me think of Ronan in a lot of ways. I'm like, yeah. He's actually really afraid of a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I wrote in my notes is that exposure to violence isn't necessarily an antidote to fear. I think it actually makes you more acutely aware of what to be afraid of. So he says he tries to avoid being inappropriately frightened, which I think is a fantastic way of looking at it. Like, have the right level of fear for things. So, like, when that thing is coming out of the Ditley Cave, yeah, be afraid of that. Take action on that. That's that's a fair mm. thing to be scared of. But, like, don't be scared of, like, going and living life because you don't actually know. And don't be afraid of your brother either, because he wasn't at the end of the last book. He was no. just like, I know how to take care of this now. And I'm he did. so proud of him for that. I'm proud of him for this act of violence. L- listen, see? I did not see the person, <laughs> I did not see myself, like, standing a hitman, but I do stand one hitman. Yeah. Well, that was all I had for violence and connection. <laughs> I think I've got a few more things. Um... Yeah, I was going to say I really love that Gansey loses time. He feels the connection to Caveswater more when he's at campus, when he's at school. I think because it feels so otherworldly and so old world. Mm. I mean, I've been stuck in the 1930s to the 1950s for the last, like, three months or however long I've been reading Agatha Christie. So I am fully, fully (laughs) in that, like, I don't know, dead poet society, but English kind of vibes and so I get like I get these passages they're really hitting hard for me right now because Gansey being like I've always been here or someone has in this room doing this thing like he's feeling the history of the place and it's kind of like the way that you describe being in older churches right older older Mm -hmm. sites of like importance like they have that zip to them because they're this accumulation of human energy they're important because they're important of that Gansey feels that and he becomes more connected to the ley line in those moments He's feeling himself slipping in and out of time, but not really understanding it. But it's almost about the timelessness of, of Aglam Bay. Do you reckon he comes mm. back and teaches there? Mm. I can't really see him as a teacher. Really? He's so professor-ish. Yeah, but like maybe a uni professor, like an Indiana Jones type, you know, <laughs> like that level <laughs> rather than yeah. a high school teacher. Polite Indiana Jones. Yeah, I don't think he'd want to, because he's not even really a high schooler now, is he? No. Um, did you have any mm. tangential marginalia? I sure did. So firstly, there are two sections where I just went at me in the uh, margins. The first one is when Green Mantle has his whole spiel about the caves, where he Mm. says some people actually do this as a form of leisure, and he felt caves had been extremely overrated. Hard same, my man. I hate a cave. I think they're terrible. I don't know why anyone ever goes into a cave ever. I loathe them. And I know that is my claustrophobia talking, but also just, no, unsubscribe, do not want. And then when Gansey is making the coffee for Henry and he says Gansey was exempt by virtue of gross favoritism. That was also <laughs> my experience in high school where I was always in the staff room and always places where I wasn't supposed to be because I could do whatever I want because of gross favoritism. So mm-hmm. I really related to that. Oh yeah. Um I love Blue talking about <laughs> Gwen Clean's dress sense and she says she could at least respect the motivation if not the outcome. I love that. Also, on the topic of Blue, I love that we've got this little throwback of Mr. Grey taking her to the The um, drugstore for a tuna fish sandwich, which is, of course, a throwback to the last book. Lovely. And it is the best tuna in town. He's officially tried them all, I'm convinced. (laughs) I just love the idea of Kavinsky's 
It's Vichy outside of all of these like dodgy little tuna sandwich shops. <laughs> like this is this is the spin-off comic book I'd love to read of like his right like or his YouTube channel, right? Writing all of the tuna sandwiches. So this one's made yeah. with celery. We're gonna try this one. He very efficiently cuts it because yeah. you know he's an assassin. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, and the other only tangential stuff I had was just like, yet again, we see these references to Ronan and Adam. Adam and Ronan. Ronan and Adam mm. keep vanishing places together. Adam and Ronan hadn't trusted her with what they were doing. But also, also, Henry has this mm. moment where he talks about, you know, Ronan makes this throwaway comic, comment about it being a good way to get expelled when Henry is putting up these poster boards or whatever mm. it is he's doing. And Henry says, you should know. And the next line is, Adam narrowed his eyes. I'm like, are you trying to defend Ronan now? <laughs> Because he is, he does the thing that my family does, which is like, we can pick on each other, but the second anyone yeah. outside of the family goes for us, you're dead. Like, that is, nope, the violence begins. Yeah, and then Adam and ha- has this repartee, and like, Ronan is just so, like, he's smirking at it. Those two are just like, I love how connected they are in ganging up against Henry, because it's like this interloper who's come into the group, right? Yeah. And, like, Ronan was like that about Adam, but now they're together against Henry, and I just mm-hmm. I just love them. I love them so much. Also, I just want to say, yeah. there is a podcast I listen to called My Brother, My Brother and Me, mm. which is by the McElroy Brothers, and they have a section called Haunted Doll Watch, where um, <laughs> they buy dolls off eBay that are purport to be haunted and then talk about it. Justin, oh I believe it's his section, and he's the one who gets them and talks about whether or not they're haunted. So, yeah, that's what I was reminded of when uh, old Green Mantle was talking about his haunted doll. Right, now I'm going to picture Colin Green Mantle as one of the McElroys. That's just that. It's just <laughs> in my brain forever. He's way too mean. He's <laughs> just so funny. Did you have any tangential? Um, I think the only one that we didn't cover already was I want to talk about on page 288 when Adam says you've got seven minutes Gansy in my household seven minutes is a joke because of a Phineas and Ferb episode called Delivery of (laughs) Destiny where he has love handle in the back of his delivery truck it's told from the perspective of Paul the logistics technician mobile logistics technician aka delivery guy and at one point they're singing seven minutes because they have a seven minute delivery service and so now whenever someone says oh you've got seven minutes any any kid and me or my husband and me will both sing seven minutes to each other and it is like a whole thing and it just cracked me up that seven minutes was here so yeah i love that i love how grumpy they were (laughs) at like being left there by gansy like how dare you don't leave us with this guy and his sandwich board I do love Henry's, um, I also wanted to point out that I love that Henry pretended to stay out all night by getting there really early, but his hair is still, like, ferociously spiked up. Like, that's the ultimate Aglamby protest, right? Like, make him think you've been out there all night, but don't actually, like, put yourself out, you know? Hmm. <laughs> it's peak adorable. Well, did you have an in-depth marginalia? I actually really struggled to come up with an in-depth this week because I kind of had three that I was ch- tossing up. So I'm just going to choose one now. And it's the one on page 281. So this is the section where Blue is talking to Gwynclean in her attic room and talking about the mirrors and being a mirror. And she's saying that they are the same. So on page 281, it says, It was not that she had aspirations of being a witch. It was that she had been a nameless accessory for so long that the idea of having a title or being anything was a delicious one. Uh, I think it relates to the theme of connection very obviously and this fact that you can find connection with someone else by sharing a purpose or sharing a definition or a place or a community. You know, you find this place 
where like you recognize yourself in someone else the way that they've recognized themselves and each other even though blue is still working through that violence i'm less certain of in this particular thing i think maybe it's sometimes it's a violent act to force people to recognize something about themselves that they maybe aren't recognized or ready to recognize or like aren't ready to express to other people like i'm thinking particularly yeah. if you are forced to come out and you're not ready or you yeah. you know you against your will or whatever like that can be a very violent thing to do to someone else it's on our list of no-nos absolutely and i think what it reminded me of is just kind of like my own experience with my own queerness and the way that i am and in a lot of ways a baby queer like i didn't really have words to describe myself for a very very long time I only really started calling myself bisexual in the last couple of years, really. But more importantly for me was the fact that I discovered the term aromantic as a concept, because for the longest, longest time, I really didn't understand myself or why I didn't feel the romantic inclinations of people my age, or like, this has been my whole life where I just thought there was something desperately wrong with me. And then when I discovered that there was a term and that other people also had this thing where they didn't want a romantic connection necessarily like they weren't opposed to it if it happened to come along but they weren't compelled to find it they didn't feel this need it is a very freeing way and i think the same way that blue has this thing that she didn't have aspirations of being a witch but she had been nameless for so long that yeah. the idea that you could find can find a word to describe what you are you can it has a lot of power and a lot of meaning and it really reminded me of the the maxim know thyself you know which was described in the temple in Delphi um, is one of the Mm. Delphian maxims and this idea that the real power in life is to know who you are and that it's not about what other people see or what other people are doing it's about understanding your own self and that's where you'll find peace really Um, and Mm. then I love that it ties into what's for me it ties into what's said on page 291 of this book where it says what was was that what life did to them all chisel them into harder truer versions of themselves because yes Gansey, i think that is what life does to us we do mm. become truer versions of ourselves as we go through life as we learn more things and i think that going forward i just want to be open to learning more because you're never done you're never finished you're always learning more and growing so yeah i love that yes keep learning keep growing keep finding new and wonderful ways to explore who you are that's that's I like like life is so vast and we only get so many years like I I don't want to be again dead poet society about it telling you to jump on your desk and <laughs> seize the day but like seriously sometimes you do need to just go out there and seize the day yeah um there was a there's a great comment going around on tumblr right now this is going to take me three years to learn and someone else said the time will pass anyway and that is like such Mm. a good way of thinking about it like if you want to learn something and you're worried about it taking time like who cares that time's going to pass anyway you might as well learn it that has just blown my mind to think about like and yeah i do have a lot of stuff i'm an incredibly busy person actually for all of the not working for a wage that i do (laughs) but yeah i love the idea that we have this time and we should use it and not to be afraid of it and be open to learning always the more that we know about ourselves the more that we can be fully in ourselves and be fully part of the world like ariel yeah exactly um did you have an in-depth marginalia i did so i wanted to talk about the bit on page 268 where persephone said i do not think that is a decision one human can make for another human about the girls orla and blue suggesting that they cut Gwenclean's hair and then she also says it takes longer than a weekend to undo centuries of damage so the context is that Gwenclean is making life hell for the occupants of 300 Foxway. Kala is furious Orla and Blue are going bonkers and they are over it and Persephone is the only one with any patience Mm -hmm. and I kind of love that about her. Uh, We've already talked a lot about how Gwenclean's life was forged by violence like she grew up in wartime 
she was an illegitimate daughter of a king who had war whispered into his ear and like she's committed murder to stop a war and then she was buried in a shill grave as punishment so i think it's really important that persephone is making sure that she has her own bodily autonomy Mm. so she's allowed to connect back with herself again as a person and not just be this sacrifice or be this like offering so um what it reminds me of in other texts is that i really agree with persephone on this i don't think being a woman is particularly great for (laughs) being told you're in charge of your own body Gwynplaine is the extreme example here, but Persephone is also right that you can't undo centuries of damage inflicted by violence and neglect in a weekend. The reason that violence is so sticky, the reason that it sticks with us and makes such an impression on us is because it's a thing that we need to avoid in order to survive. And that's why it's so big. That's why it takes up so much space. It's an evolutionary thing that we all have to look at the awful things for longer because we want to avoid them. Like, we want to survive. So I think that's part of why trauma is so sticky, right? So Mm. I think that Persephone's right that it's going to take a lot of time to get Gwen Clean into a place where she's not, like, bonkers and maybe convince her to brush and cut her hair. And, like, the thing they have to do is to form a connection and work on building that trust. And I think the the best person to do this has actually been the Grey Man so far, right? Persephone's doing fine just sort of being a benevolent fairy godmother, but the Grey Man is the one who gets her to talk. Mm. And I love that. Going forward, I would like to reiterate, it takes time. So I'm going to give myself time for things that I need to work on. Give other people time. Let the time happen. Why do we need to rush it? Why can't it take the time it takes? People are worth the work and people are worth the time. Nice. Yeah. Sometimes you do just want to rush it, but you can't. You just need to be kind and let people work through things at their own time. I'm never going to get the best time in the therapy marathon, so I might as well just (laughs) really make sure I'm doing it the safest and best way, right? (laughs) Yeah, totally. (laughs) Well, did you have a character you wanted to spotlight? Yeah, look, I want to spotlight Jesse Ditley. I feel like he's had a uh, rough couple of days. I love that he still thinks life is great. I love that he's happy to see Blue and he calls her a good aunt. And Mm -hmm. I also really love that he's made peace with the fact that it's his turn to be the sacrifice in the cave, which makes me very worried because I really like him. But sometimes just knowing that someone else has done the hard work and it's time for you to take over is like a real asset. And I think Jesse Ditley is a great person. So he gets all the love for this week. How about you? Who do you want to spotlight? I'm going to spotlight Adam this week because I think Hmm. he has a near-death experience, but he's also protected by a mystical forest that has his back and, as you said, acts as a parent figure to him. But it's also Hmm. just really, you know, it strikes me as really important because Adam has never wanted to rely on anyone. He's always wanted to do things on his own terms. He never wants anyone's help or to accept help. But he has accepted Caves Water and he's, like, found this kind of peace within that and this weirdness And I really love that for him. So, yeah. We love found family. Sometimes the magical forest were the friends you needed on on the way. I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) totally. It's great. Yeah. My mom and dad are a magical forest. How great is that? Love that. (laughs) Well, do you have any homework for our listeners this week? Do I have homework? I mean, watch West Wing. It's great. I've said it before, but it is actually great. I just finished a book this morning called The Bookseller at the End of the World by Ruth Shaw. She is a Mm. New Zealander and it's a memoir about her life. And yes, she runs a bookshop Mm. deep down south, which is why it's got that title. But she's just had the most interesting life. And it's just a really lovely read where someone is just actually a really good person doing good things for other people despite their her own trauma and the mm. horrible things that she's gone through but yeah fascinating life so well worth a read beautiful i love it did you have homework i do i want everybody to go and watch phineas and ferb specifically the delivery <laughs> of destiny episode look i know it's a kids show but it's kind of anyone can watch it and enjoy it 
It's great. I am Candace, one hundred and ten percent. I am oh, way less chill than she is, and she is not chill at all. So that is just the curse of the eldest sister, and I love her. But yeah, it's a great, it's a great show. <laughs> I am Perry. <laughs> <laughs> just skiving off to become a, a secret agent. Yeah. <laughs> but who is your doofenshmirtz if you're Perry? This I must know. Probably some horrible person at work. No, because they've got quite a lovely relationship. <laughs> Maybe it's my homie. They do have a lovely relationship. I could write a thesis, I think, about Doof and Perry and the way that they interact. It's so beautiful. Mm. Over the whole series as well, they turn up for each other. There's this loving thwarting going on. It really reminds me of Kim Possible and... Yeah. I haven't watched Kim Possible in so long. (laughs) Last thing before we go, did you see that the Nimona trailer is out? I did see, and it comes out 30th of June. Very excited. I just want to say I'm so excited. I loved Nimona. I mean, we love everything that Nate Stevenson does, but like Nimona was sort of the big like first thing that I really. It honestly just gives me so much joy because I have feel like I've been so part of this journey from the start. Like I remember when Nate was in art school and I was following them on Tumblr, Mm -hmm. and so like I've just Mm -hmm. been along on this whole journey. We've been through the broship of the rings. I've got the art on my wall. Like we've done this whole thing. (laughs) It's She-Ra and now Nimona's gonna be a show. Like it just honestly I feel like I've I'm watching my bestie succeed in life and they don't even know who I am. This is the way I feel too. I have very few parasocial relationships, but I think that like because Tumblr and specifically 2012 Tumblr was such a unique mm. little ecosystem, you really did fr- feel like you were friends with your mutuals and you really did feel like you were friends with people who you followed. And that's Mm. kind of why. But also, Nate's just amazing. And also, Nate's wife, Molly, is amazing. And I can highly recommend both of their substacks. Maybe that should be my other homework. Maybe I'll save it for next week. But like... Yeah, and Molly's Molly's graphic novels as well are lovely. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, talk about a middle grade writer who's doing, like, leaps and bounds for queer communities, for queer kids. Like, this is the stuff I really needed as a kid to be like, oh, this is possible. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. And it's magic. There's magic. Love magic. Everything yeah. should have magic. Oh. Anyway, we managed to get through this whole violent discussion mm. and end on such a good note. So next week we'll be reading chapters 38 through 42 through the theme of heartbreak, which is marginally better. <laughs> <laughs> marginally. Great. We'll see how we go. But thank you so much, Jenna. It was excellent to record with you today. I'm so glad we got to hang out. And we're reading one of my favorite books and it just makes my heart so happy. Yay. It's always a lovely, lovely time. Thank you so much. And I'll see you next week. All right, see you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by us, Gen D and Gen V. We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to hello at marginaliapod.com, check out our Instagram, or maybe dash off a quick review. You can also subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our music is by Scott Buckley, and the logo artwork is by Laura Cato. You can find detailed show notes for each episode and much more at our website www.marginaliapod.com. Special thanks to all the people in our various communities whose love and care sustains us. Without your support, we would be very sad little critters. We appreciate you. And to you, our wonderful listeners, thanks again for being here. We love spending this time with you. 